you, you know, in my design work is very focused in trans community and in self-actualization um, and self-determination when it comes to the body and having the resources to feel like yourself in your clothes. Hey, and welcome to the Parallax Podcast. I'm Liz Brown. In this episode, I was joined by local artist, performer, playwright, and designer Epchez. Epchez's work is informed by Quaker practice and their liminal experience as a transsexual, non-binary, Jewish, and Latinx. Epchez's production company, Alma's Engine, has produced six new works in the past six years. Epchez is currently the Leeway Foundation Artist-in-Residence at the Philly Makerspace NextFab, working on a non-binary design project called Darbgarb. With Darbgarb, Epchez is applying creative technology to help non-binary people claim and honor themselves with gender-affirming wearables. I started our conversation by asking Epchez what it's like to apply creativity across so many mediums and where all of their creative energy comes from. I totally get what it's like to do a million different things and feel like people are putting you in a box all the time. There's no box that fits someone like you or I at all. You work across different types of media, and you're constantly working on numerous creative projects at once, from theater to playwriting, poetry, experimental music, and now your design work at NextFab. What gives you energy, and what is the source of that type of playful creativity? So for a long time, I had all my creative work under the label Alma's Engine, which is still my website name. And to me, that's, you know, Alma is soul in Spanish. And I think about it, like, what is that engine? that keeps my soul happy, keeps me going. I'm definitely more of a dreamer naturally or an inventor, theorist, you know, idea person than an executor of ideas. So I'm constantly having ideas that want to come into the world. And, (laughs) you know, the things that manage to get a little bit of traction are the things that start to pop up. But I see my work as just planting those seeds of creativity. And hopefully over time, the energy within me will like come to follow up on some of those things every now and then enough to get traction, get things moving, get things going. And I I feel like I've been out in the world doing this work for five, seven years now. And sometimes it's like, oh, no one's paying attention. I'm just doing my little thing over here. Then sometimes it's like, oh, someone did see this and it led to a show at the PMA or like, you know, things start to pick up in different places. But I see my creative process as sort of a a spiral because I am really content doing a lot of different things. And sometimes I know I need to focus on one thing for a minute if it's going to get to the next level. (laughs) But that's something that's just really hard for me still. So that spiral action, you know, I can drop something and trust that I'll come back around to it in the future. Yeah. I will have just like le- left that little gift for myself in the future when just I'm ready waiting. to pick it up. Exactly. I uh, have a lot of forgiveness for myself when I do let things gestate, marinate, ripen a little bit more. And then, you know, the universe will come back around to support me in that. I think that's a good way to think about it. So you're non-binary, Cuban, Quaker, and Jewish and this is a complex identity 
that's apparent throughout your work. So I want to know, was dysphoria between these different identities a catalyst for your artwork? I think the, the biggest catalyst for my artwork is actually in my uh, faith tradition. I was raised Quaker. Uh, my, my parents both uh, were convinced friends, which is the like Quaker jargon term for <laughs> <laughs> when you know become that. a Quaker. Yeah, convincement. Yeah, so I, I grew up, you know, always going to Quaker events and, you know, a lot of the like youth programs and things. But, you know, different than other kinds of church kids, we were like going to protests and learning how to become conscientious objectors. And to be able to do things like that has to really shape you. Yeah, absolutely. And we have this very like intense focus on the Quaker values of like simplicity, integrity, equality. Well, I like to say equity um, and community. There's a whole acronym thing I don't really want to get into, but <laughs> particularly like integrity became almost to an unhealthy <laughs> place, like became a, a focus of the work I was trying to make. And, you know, integrity is one of those impossible things in the society that we live in. Yeah. Like you can't actually do it at all. And the more you try, the more you feel like a hypocrite. It's a big word it's with a lot of meaning and a lot of people don't know how to define it. Actually, I was in the Air Force and integrity is one of the values <laughs> in the Air Force. And I got out on don't ask, don't tell. Right. And a lot of it was because I had a lot of conversations with myself about what does integrity really mean and what does it mean to be myself in this situation. And it's a lot. It's a very powerful word. And a lot of the values have this sort of double-edged sword to it where, where it's like, this sounds like a really great value, but it is also wrapped up in a lot of um, martyr mentality, white saviorist kind of ways of thinking that I, you know, hope that Quakerism can grow past. Growing up in that environment, I am only starting to realize now the, the ways that like many big aspects of my identity were like not at all a part of that and sort of erased within that white experience. Yeah. Kind of brings me to my next question, which is, what is the importance of language and storytelling and making sense of such a complex set of experiences that don't easily fit into the commonly understood categories? Right. So, like, I mean, I just live in a liminal space as a, I don't have a binary gender, I don't have a binary race or ethnicity. Um, you know, white people think I'm white. I Other get it. people know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I, I still do operate sometimes from a sort of oh I'm I'm a bridge uh, of liminality. But I, th I think the more I'm honest with how I can show up authentically as myself in a space, it's more about just having fun on my little island. Rather than trying to, like, bridge the gap between folks, that doesn't actually help me to be a person. So were you raised in a, um, in a bilingual household? A little bit. My parents are both, like, academics and professors. So when my mom would have sabbatical, we would always live in Spanish-speaking places. I lived in Costa Rica for a bit as a child. I lived in southern Spain and Malaga. And I lived in Santiago, Chile when I was, like, 15 for a oh, bit. All of that sounds fun. It was really wonderful, especially in Chile because I was— we had had a really bad schooling experience in Spain. And so in Chile, um, we were homeschooling. And so it was much more just like school by museum. And um. <laughs> <laughs> Many of my Quaker friends lived like that. The reason I ask about language is because I, I'm wondering, does growing up and speaking a grammatically gendered language, like, <laughs> it's like Spanish, 
add another layer of complexity to your relationships with language, and how does that affect you today? I mean, I have trouble speaking Spanish now, I'm going to be honest. Like, I have trouble connecting with my Latin American heritage. I don't really know how much I could travel or, like, if I would have to, like, you know, go in the closet to travel or, like, what that would be like. But that's very difficult to think about. Yeah. I mean, I, I visited Cuba a lot growing up and other places in Latin America, too. And I just don't know what that experience would be like now if I were to try and go back. I think it would have to be under very specific circumstances. But I do love knowing Spanish. I love being able to speak Spanish with my family. I love being able to speak Spanish with, like, random people who speak Spanish. (laughs) And, like, within the queer community and also with my puppy, we will, like, play with non-gendered endings of words and play with the language is really exciting and brings a lot of joy. So... You've also used the term mongrel uh, to identify yourself. Could you tell me why? I think it's a really powerful word, being Jewish. I think that's probably the part of my identity that comes heaviest through like epigenetics and things. And when I talk to my friends about all the stuff that's going on in the world, and I just have this innate instinct of like, oh, plan for when you have to get the out. Like, (laughs) plan for that because it could happen. And the depth with how I know that is not really explicable. Honestly, I like the phonetics of the word. I think it sounds good and like kind of like ferocious in a playful way. And I think anytime a word has been like leveraged against a people or in my case, like many different peoples for different reasons. And then here I am sort of a conglomeration of those things. Yeah, you're owning it. I'm owning it. You know, like I am a mutt. We talk about hybrid vigor all the time in my family, my household. And like that is the mongrel experience. I think the reality of hybrid identity is part of that creating space for something else. When we recognize this country as a country of the hybrid, you know, so many people see it that way. Like that creates a space for that when people are making a lot of um, assumptions about who this country is for. And I think about that in the Latinx experience a lot. Um, So many of us don't have a sense of what side of colonization our people are on. So in that not knowing, I mean, like, I could take a DNA test, but, like, that doesn't (laughs) actually change the experience of, like, what it means to be Latinx and I'm from the Latina diaspora. Yeah. And then having Spanish as a language Mm -hmm. is one of those things that you could really grapple with if you think too deeply about it. It's like, well, now, is this my language? Right. Is it not? And then you already have other layers <laughs> that are making you have that same question. So it's a lot to think about. But also as somebody who like does pass as white and does receive a lot of the benefits of white privilege in a lot of my life, particularly be- because I come from a family that has some amount of class privilege, I can't ignore what whiteness does. Like I can't pretend that that's not part of my experience because it is a big part of my experience. And I think that's something I do try to focus on a lot in my work is unpacking like how whiteness functions in our society to try and create less space for otherness, to create less space for imagining success that looks different than capitalism. And I have a show that does dig in really deep to the conquistador mentality. This is a show, public-private, it's a solo performance. I go into these two characters of the lieutenant nun and the public universal friend who are two gender nonconforming real historical figures. And the lieutenant nun was this 
really brutal conquistador in his time and just like trying to really understand like that that's part of humanity you know that's part of what humans can do to each other and if we refuse to understand that mindset i think we risk you know falling into it without meaning to there are a lot of different ways to be human Mm -hmm. and we justify a lot we can justify anything that's part of the uh pliability of of the human spirit is that we can justify anything. That's one of my biggest frustrations in conversations about ethics and morals and inclusion as a whole and creating safe spaces is you can justify anything you want if you have the proper language and know-how. And it's a big frustration because people can undo all of the work that you do, everything that you put out, and also time. Or like history, and you do a lot of work with with things that are historical, things change, language changes, societies change for good and for bad. It's a very difficult thing to look at, but also exciting. Yeah. (laughs) At the same time, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. For me, it's like, oh, all this stuff, it feels like really low-hanging fruit for me because it's like, it's just everywhere. It's all over. (laughs) But people are really, white people are really afraid to engage with it. So I would agree. I'm like very happy to do that. To explain the concept of safe spaces to people who don't need them Mm -hmm. is very difficult. And I think that you're creating safe spaces through your work just by letting people know that there are different stories out here. And so your work brings nuance to the trans story. You know, why is that important to you? Well, I don't know that it is. You know, I I am trans. I think trans people deserve everything. And I, I am interested in representation, but I'm not really interested in, like, explaining yeah. who we are. I think just that we, you know, exist in many different stories. I think that's really important because that's kind of the same way that I go about my work within the tech community. I get frustrated because I often get invited to speak as a woman or an LGBT person or a person of color in my experience within the tech community, when in reality, I would love to be able to just talk about my work. And I think that that's really important to have representation and to just have it be what it is, but it'll always be a part of us just because that's who we are. Like when I research people who, you know, were gender nonconforming, particularly these two individuals that I, you know, wrote about in this show, that's who they were, but they just knew, they knew themselves and they knew that's who they were and they just went about their lives and their lives didn't have much to do with queerness. That wasn't like part of the equation, really. It's not a part of their character. Right. What makes them them. I mean, and in some ways because they were isolated because they, you know, didn't, there wasn't anyone else that they came into contact with necessarily. And in other ways, it was like, in both of their cases, because of the religious contexts that they were existing in, there were like religious reasons for the way that they were. You know, and my design work is very focused in trans community and in self-actualization and self-determination when it comes to the body and having the resources to feel like yourself in your clothes and feel like 
yourself when you like think about your genitalia and that's particularly I don't know if we want to get into like no no no. I actually was yeah I'm curious about your residency at NextFab and the work you're doing there so what can you tell me about that sure yeah so this comes out of a project that I've been doing for a couple years now which started as I was making puppets for packing basically for like putting where um, someone's penis might be to like create a bulge in the pants. I started making myself little puppets to do that. And by puppets, I just mean like, you know, I would cut things out of foam and cover them in fabric and they'd be funny and cute. Where'd you get the idea from? I just, it was something that I started doing with clown noses. And then I had some like old pieces of puppets lying around from a show where I like was a Martian landscape and there was this eyeball um, <laughs> that was like about the right size. <laughs> <laughs> you just, you know, it's the right size. So it's, it's the right size. Well use so it. you might as well use it. So, I mean, and that is how, that's how it happened. And then I was like, I can make things the right size really easily. And then I can, like, ask other people what they would want to be the right size. And the more I started having those conversations, the more it was like, this is a really important place in the body that we don't have ways to necessarily claim that space for ourselves without really invasive surgeries. And so part of my work is, like, developing the actual objects and part of it is work with the imagination to use active imagination and sort of meditation tactics to you know think about you know close your eyes and grow whatever needs to grow there yeah it is a sacred space it's a really intimate space it's a space that is ripe for a lot of symbolism to to come forward for people it is a very serious thing and i think it's cool that you're using something that's playful in a way because it does mean a lot to people to have something that makes them feel like themselves yeah and i think for non-binary people in particular we struggle with the you know really binary nature of genitalia And so, you know, that project has moved on from being just about packers as an option into, and what else can I make for people? What other prosthetics are people missing, you know? What other parts do you know you have that you have never seen on yourself? So are you experimenting with different materials in NextFab? Lots of different materials. And the NextFab residency in particular is actually for developing affirming shapewear and a an open binding technology, so like a better binder, because binders are awful, truly awful and bad for us. So I rarely, rarely have worn binders. I use tape most of the time. I sell tape on the website as well. And I try to have like other, as many like holistic design and resources as possible. And that's like a growing resource library. That's really awesome. I love the NextFab spaces, and I've been experimenting with 3D printing and things like that, so I think it's really cool. It sounds like a lot of fun. I just want to step back, though, and say we should probably have an explanation of why someone would pack and why someone would bind for people who don't understand these concepts like you and I do. I mean, it's just about bodily autonomy and how, how you want to be seen in the world and how... Each individual wants to take up space, and for a lot of people with, like, larger chests, um, they don't want that to be what people see when they look at them. And, you know, for a lot of people, it feels really good to—really affirming to, like, have 
um, a little bulge in the front of your pants. And, you know, for, for folks going in the other direction, it can be really affirming to have more hip. The shapewear that I'm working on actually emphasizes quads. So it sort of like will make the profile less curved by emphasizing the quads on folks oh, wow. and doing a little hip compression and emphasizing quads. So it's just about, you know, feeling like you look like yourself when you look in the mirror. So at NextFab, what I'm working on is like specifically those two prototypes, but I'm also really excited about what you were talking about earlier, experimenting with different materials and particularly trying to figure out what sustainable materials I can use because I don't want to create things that are ultimately not going to be sustainable products or are just going to like end up in landfills or I know foam is pretty terrible as it doesn't biodegrade or anything. It just sort of like stays there. And you don't want to create more trash in this world. Right. I don't want to like mess up ecosystems with the things. So I'm starting to, you know, reach out with and have conversations with different companies that are making more sustainable materials. Um, there's a company that makes, they don't quite make it yet for consumer use, but they're working on a 100% mycelium foam, trying to get in touch with them and figure out I can use some scraps they have to yeah. <laughs> test things out. <laughs> so if anyone has the scraps, they, they yeah. know where to send it now. Right, you know, right, right, right. Now I just use, uh, you know, scraps of donated memory foam. I do want to know, you know, for anyone that's interested in, you know, in your work and how to get involved, you know, is there a way that someone can get involved in your work? So many ways. So I have a website for the design work, which is Darb Garb. It's just <laughs> I love that name. Too. Darb Garb. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's catchy. And thank you. I use the word Darb to label my gender. It feels like some kind of clownish, trolly kind of. It's also like a slang word from the twenties that meant excellent. <laughs> really? Oh, all right. Yeah. So Learn something new every day. Right. Um, I chose it because it was very like poetic in terms of like what how I feel to be in the world <laughs> and yeah I like when things rhyme and sound hilarious together so yeah, <laughs> I like it too so they can they darbgarb.com can go to yeah darbgarb.com and it's still a little beta but there's a lot of resources there uh, you can order designs you can email me with questions or whatever you can commission anything. And I also do consultations because I think a really important part of this work is being somebody that people can talk to about what they're going through with presentation. Non-binary folks, there's not really a roadmap necessarily. And more and more, there are examples of people out there in the world or uh, gender goals. People <laughs> throw that out. <laughs> um, but it can be really confusing. And sometimes you can feel like you don't have any you know, role models or things to base yourself off of. So I am open to having, you know, conversations with folks, going through people's closets with them. Oh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> and also doing, like, counseling around intimacy and how to access pleasure as a person who may feel really disconnected from what you got going on down there. Yeah, that's so important. It's a really hard thing to do. So, you know, it's a lot of trial and error for folks, yeah. too. Well, I had so much fun talking with you today. Your work seems amazing. I look forward to learning more. I hope people that are listening check out both of your sites and, you know, hit you up if they if they need to feel a little bit less alone in this world. And 
need a consultation for any of the above. I I really appreciate you guys reaching out and having the opportunity to come here and talk about things. And I hope that I know that I'll keep, you know, growing and changing. I hope my I hope that the work that I make is, you know, more and more a reflection of the kinds of things we talked about today. Thanks so much for listening and thanks so much to FCHES for stopping by the studio. Be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And when you do, don't forget to leave a rating and review. We'll rely on your feedback to make this project the best it can be. Any further thoughts on the conversation? Send a tweet or message to us at Parallax Collab on Twitter. A special thanks to Christopher Heckler for editing today's episode, Kilimanzigo for our music, our producers, Helene Forian, Lean Entwig, and Nicole Coltick. This project is made possible by support from the Excite Center, the Design Futures Lab, and a recording space at the Dornsife Center for Community Partnerships at Drexel University. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>